Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, October 18th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Southwest Airlines has what has to be considered one of the greatest marketing campaigns in recent history. Want to get away, right? Over the years, they've had a number of hilarious 30-second commercials about people getting into embarrassing situations with a voiceover narrative at the end asking, want to get away? And then they advertise low fares to numerous destinations you can fly to in case you actually do want to get away. The commercials began back in 1998, they ran for a decade, then took about an eight-year hiatus before returning in 2016. Remember the one about the woman using her friend's guest bathroom, and she's looking around to make sure that nobody's watching her, she opens the medicine cabinet just to take a look, and she finds some cream or something and kind of smirks to herself and then goes to put it back, and the entire set of glass shelves come crashing down with a cacophony of sound. Uh, The woman looks extremely embarrassed, and the voice says, want to get away? Or did you see the one about the guy who pulls up to his girlfriend's house after a date night together and there's an affectionate kiss goodnight and then after watching her walk up to her door, he relaxes and shall we say um, breaks wind uh, with such veracity that's obviously been causing him discomfort to hold it in for so long, only then to look down and see that uh, his date's phone got left on the seat, which of course she comes back to retrieve and gets a full whiff of his car's fragrance. Want to get away? Or uh, the nondescript government war room with lots of staff at individual computer terminals and the big wall-to-wall digital screen up in front, and a staff member says, there's been a brief breach, General. We need your password so we can lock down the system. Uh, my password? He stammers. Yes, sir. We need your password. The password that I use here. Yes, sir. The password. At which time he says, someone else says, there's been another breach. And the general, obviously flustered, says, right, I... H-A-T-E-M-Y-J-O-B-1. This very awkward silence fills the room as everyone sees how this general actually feels about his current employment. Want to get away? Want to get away could be the slogan for the start of our Bible reading today from the book of Luke. We'll get to that in just a moment. Welcome to the seventh and final installment of our current series, Tasting Grace, discovering the power of food to connect us to God, to one another, and to ourselves. It's based on Melissa D'Arabian's best-selling book of the same title. Melissa is a fellow United Methodist from St. Paul's UMC on Coronado Island here in San Diego. And it it doesn't seem like we've been doing this for seven weeks now, does it already? Boy, I, I hope you have enjoyed the series as much as I have. And as Pastor John mentioned earlier, we have a wonderful opportunity tonight. At 5 p.m., our church and Melissa's church will be Zooming together in a meet and greet with the author herself. You can find the link on both the church app and the church website. And yes, I know the Dodger game starts at 5.18 p.m., but you can DVR it and catch up uh, after. Or you can stay for the first 
18 minutes of the meet and greet and then check out for the Dodgers. Either way, you and Jesus work it out. It's going to be great. If you go to the church website, by the way, uh, it's in the link is in the food for thought uh, paragraph. You can find Melissa's name in red and the Zoom link in orange. And so I hope uh, that many of us will be able to log on together tonight. Our scripture reading for today, which the Serrano family players so wonderfully uh, reenacted for us, is the story of Jesus meeting the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's from Luke's gospel, the final chapter, chapter 24. It's Easter Sunday. In fact, the first Easter Sunday. And while most of us today see Easter Sunday as a bright and joyous event, that's not how that first Easter Sunday went, not by a long shot. Even after receiving the audacious news that Jesus might actually be alive, the disciples weren't out jumping for joy and celebrating. No, Luke tells us that word came to them by some of the women followers, and back in those days, women didn't hold much clout. So the male disciples on that first Easter were huddled together in fear. They were afraid that the religious authorities might be coming after them next. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, biblical scholars will have to admit, they don't really have any idea where Emmaus is. They cannot locate it with any certainty. Luke tells us it's about seven miles from Jerusalem, but that's, really, that's about all that we know. However, Frederick Beekner, in his collection of sermons entitled The Magnificent Defeat, writes this. Where was Emmaus and why did they go there? It was no place in particular, really, and the only reason that they went there was that it was some seven miles distant from a situation that had become unbearable. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wivest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that men have had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, they have always been twisted out of shape by selfish men or selfish ends. Author Ken Geyer, in his powerful devotional Moments with the Savior, puts it this way. The road to Emmaus is the road we take after we've been to Golgotha. It's the road we take when the other roads we've taken turn out to be dead ends. It's the road out of town, the road to getting away from it all. Hmm. Want to get away? Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's a curious ending to that verse, isn't it? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The literal Greek translation is that the eyes were being held back. And that does seem strange, doesn't it? It, it implies that God is the one who's preventing them from recognizing Jesus. I mean, if they were Jesus' followers, you'd think they would know and recognize him immediately. Oh, I know, maybe they were all wearing masks, you know, before mask wearing was fashionable. Yeah, probably, probably not. Frederick Buechner, though, makes an interesting point. He wonders if the reason that they didn't recognize Jesus was that perhaps that even when he was alive, they hadn't truly recognized him. 
Instead of seeing Jesus for who he actually was, they only saw him as who they wanted him to be for them. A hero who would give them a lot of easy answers to all of life's hardest questions. Questions about love and pain, about goodness and death. But if we've read any of the Gospels, we know that Jesus isn't about providing easy answers. No, instead he promises to give himself to us especially in the midst of our love and pain, goodness and death. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? At this point in the story, we know a couple of things, right? One, that these two aren't uh, two of the 12 apostles. It's Cleopas and somebody else, right? So remember, there are a number of people who are following Jesus over and above the 12 that he personally called to follow him. In fact, earlier in Luke chapter 10, we're told that Jesus sent 72 disciples out into the surrounding towns to prepare uh, the, the area for his visits. So we have Cleopas and I don't know, maybe his wife or a neighbor or some other unnamed disciple, which is kind of a neat storytelling technique if you think about it, right? Because now we ourselves can be put in that role of the person walking with Cleopas, that we can be the unnamed disciple. Second, not only the disciples not recognize Jesus, but they're clearly at a disadvantage in the knowledge department despite thinking to the contrary, right? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know these things, they ask? Uh, Actually, he's the only one that does know the full details of everything that has come to pass. So right then we know this is going to be a fun encounter between the three of these individuals. So when Jesus asks Uh, what things, they begin to tell him everything about this guy uh, named Jesus that they had been following, right? He was a mighty prophet, both in word and deed. They hoped that he was the one, the one that God had promised, the Messiah, you know, the the wolf shall lie with the lamb and and beating swords and plowshares kind of game-changing leader, the the peace on earth and goodwill to all uh, sort of situation. But no, he was condemned by the religious leaders and murdered by crucifixion, and their hopes for Jesus died when he died. There was, however, this bizarre rumor that he was now alive, but it it couldn't be verified by anyone that they actually trusted. I mean, dang it, they had so hoped that he was the king that he claimed to be. Now it looks like his life really hadn't uh, added up to that much after all. Verse 25, then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all of the scriptures. Have you ever heard the saying, you can get an A in Bible knowledge and still flunk Christianity? That's what's happening here, right? These two disciples, to borrow another expression, couldn't see the forest because of the trees. 
Ken Geyer points out that Jesus doesn't chide them for not believing the testimony of the women or not believing the testimony of the empty tomb. No, he chides them for not believing the testimony of the scriptures. Ouch. How many of us could that be said of as well? We have such a wealth of insight and inspiration at our fingertips in the Bible. Why not renew our passion to read and be instructed by God through those wonderful words of life? In fact, you're welcome to join us every Monday and Tuesday morning online for our scripture journaling, where we read and hear what it is that God might be saying us. It's 8 a.m. both days, Pacific time. You can go to the app or the website for the link. But Jesus, at this moment, on that walk to Emmaus, now decides to give his two disciples a personal, in-depth Bible study uh, about all of the Hebrew scriptures leading all the way up to his crucifixion. How amazing that must have been, right? To have heard how Jesus himself interpreted and implied, uh, applied the words of scripture to himself. Verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. As Richard Benson points out in his Smith & Helvey's commentary on Luke, the disciples may have forgotten Jesus' teachings, but they remembered their manners, and they invited him to stay with them. Hospitality is a vital component in the ancient Near East society. And even Jesus had taught his disciples how important it was to welcome the stranger in their midst. It could very well have been because Jesus himself knew what it meant to be a stranger. He had been an immigrant and a foreigner as he and his family had to flee to Egypt when he was just an infant. Jesus never presumes that he will be invited in by anyone, whether it's into a house or into a heart. But he's always willing to respond to those invitations, leaving that initiative up to us. So Jesus acts as if he's going further than Emmaus, and the disciples reach out in hospitality and love and grace, and they invite him to stay with them. Hospitality is our theme for this week in Tasting Grace, and Melissa has some wonderful insights on the subject. She begins by stating early on that biblical hospitality is not about impressing. It's about service to others, not performance. It's about sharing the gift of God's ingredients with others. There's something magical that happens when we welcome people into our homes, writes Melissa. When we share our private living space with others, we're inviting them into a special kind of intimacy. And and it requires a certain amount of vulnerability on our part. Jody and I used to joke that the only time we ever cleaned our house was when we uh, had invited guests over and we had to kind of get it uh, looking good. When we were uh, first married and living in uh, student, married student apartments during seminary, whenever we had friends over, we would simply put all of our dirty dishes into the oven and order takeout uh, just so they wouldn't see how messy our room really was. Uh, 30 years of marriage later, we're much more civilized. We invited our in-laws to come and live with us so they can help us in cleaning the house. Uh, Remember, though, in all seriousness, we don't have to have a Better Homes and Gardens caliber uh, of home uh, to invite people over. Melissa says it's a gift 
to show others our imperfect lives. It reveals our humanness without even saying a word. And I know what some of you are thinking, Pastor Jim, you have no idea how human our home really is. That's okay, because the bottom line in hospitality, it's, it's all about loving others. It's about following Jesus' example of servant leadership and opening our homes and our hearts to guests. Melissa mentions that one of the wonderful lessons she learned from her mother was that people are more important than food, right? So when we invite others over, make sure that we take the time to actually be with them rather than to spend all the time in the kitchen getting things ready. She says the most important thing we can give our guests is our attention and our love. Jesus' entire life was spent reaching out in welcome to all with whom he came in contact. Foreigners, strangers, people from different walks of life, those that others intentionally avoided. Jesus routinely ate with both religious leaders and common folk, with the holy and with sinners alike. And in our Bible passage for today, he's about to eat with two disciples. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So what started out as an invitation to hospitality by the disciples soon became an opportunity for Jesus to become the host, as he takes the lead and breaks bread with them. Luke tells us that their eyes were open and they recognized him. Ken Geyer remarks, the life had caved in on these two men. Enough light came through the fallen debris and airborne dust to give them hope. They couldn't see everything, but they could see him. And that was enough. Enough to give them the strength to dig their way out, enough to keep them from giving in to their sadness or giving up on their hope. You see, prior to that meal with Jesus, their eyes could see everything that was happening in the world, everything that is except what mattered most. But in all of that, but all of that changed when they offered hospitality to Jesus. My friend, Pastor Jonathan Shute, notes that the word companion literally means someone with whom we share bread. Come with pane bread. So Jesus arrives as a stranger to these two disciples and then through hospitality becomes their companion, becomes one with whom he shares bread and everything changes because that's what happens in God's kingdom. Frank Rogers Jr. is the professor of spiritual formation at the UMC-affiliated Claremont School of Theology here in Southern California. In his timely book, Practicing Compassion, The Way of Jesus, Rogers tells this true story about his son, Justin. He writes, Justin was three when his mom and I divorced. Shortly thereafter, during Mass at our local Catholic church, Justin asked why he could not have Eucharist like everyone else at church. I went to the priest. I told the priest, Justin, now more than ever, needed to feel at home in his religious community, that Jesus certainly welcomed children at his table, and that I considered it more than appropriate for Justin to begin his sacramental preparation. 
I also assured the priest that as a seminary professor in spiritual formation, I would personally take responsibility for Justin learning the meaning of Eucharist and how to partake of it in a responsible manner. In the meantime, while I prepared him for the church-sanctioned ceremony, I would break a small piece from the host given to me, and I would share it to just, with Justin until the church ceremony where he could receive the full host for himself. Well, the priest agreed, and Justin and I established a sacramental routine. Every Sunday as we drove to church, I would share another story, another insight, another dimension of what the Eucharist means to Christians. Justin would take in my words, and during communion, I would break off a small piece of my host and share it with my boy. After some months of this routine, I began to ponder additional lessons to impart to Justin when something occurred to me that I had not yet described. Justin, I said on the car ride to church one Sunday, Justin, there's another reason why we take the Eucharist each week. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a huge party, the biggest party you could possibly imagine. It'll be called the Feast of Life. And what's really cool about this party is that everyone in the world is invited. Not just friends and family, but strangers too. We will all be at the same party. Even people from different schools will be at the same party. Even people from different countries will be at the same party. Even, and now I was suggesting something completely outrageous, even people who are enemies to each other, even they will be at the same party. But they will be friends, eating bread and drinking wine and celebrating the feast of life together. Isn't that cool? He says, Justin pondered this for a while, stretching his imagination into so vast a hope. And then he wanted to make sure that he got it right. So, so you're telling me, Dad, he said, that at the feast of life, even enemies are going to be friends again? Yes, Justin, even enemies will be friends. So, so at the feast of life, even the coyote and the roadrunner will be friends? <laughs> yeah, I smiled. He got it. Even the coyote and the roadrunner will be friends. Even, even Dorothy and the wicked witch will be friends? Yes, even Dorothy and the wicked witch will be friends. His vision stretched as far as it dared, and then it dared to stretch even farther. Dad? Yes, Justin? At the Feast of Life, will even you and Mommy be friends? He said, his hope pierced my heart like a spear. Yes, Justin. At the Feast of Life, even your mom and I will be friends once more. He took this in. And then he turned his hope into a sacrament. Daddy, he said, at the Eucharist today, this time I want the big piece. Friends, when we offer hospitality to one another, when we invite others into our homes and into our lives, we make ourselves vulnerable. But we also open ourselves to being richly blessed by those same guests. When we give ourselves away for others in hosp hospitality, our eyes may be opened and we might just find that Jesus 
is the one who is present in that exchange, giving us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Whether we're sharing the actual sacrament of Holy Communion on a Sunday morning or just sharing a hot dog out on the golf course, the risen Christ is present in real and powerful ways for us. He is our companion. Let's listen to Melissa as she shares her seventh and final invitation, this time an RSVP into hospitality. Biblical hospitality is about service, not performance. So what does society say about hospitality? Well, it all starts out innocently enough, right? We want to have people over, we have a heart of service, and we want to welcome them into our homes. But somewhere along the line, we go down that slippery slope, and we're hearing society say, impress your friends with this really easy recipe, or make your friends think that you spent hours in the kitchen when you really only spent 15 minutes. In other words, society is saying, impress and perform for your friends. And that is hospitality. What does God say about hospitality? Well, God says biblical hospitality is about love of strangers and it's about service. God says that we invite in people so that we leave space for God to join us. So how can we RSVP to that invitation? Well, I've got a couple of ideas. One is, think about your language around hospitality when you're hosting people or thinking about hosting people, probably in your front yard right now. Is your language the language of separation and impressing people? Is your language um, thinking about company-worthy dishes, or dazzling your friends, or impressing them? Is it the language of creating a small pedestal where people come into your home impressed by you, watching the performance? Or is it the language of unifying and bringing people together? The second challenge, I would say, as part of this RSVP, is to think about who we are including in our hospitality. Hospitality is love of strangers. We saw that with Abraham in Genesis. So it's not just about inviting our friends over after church on a Sunday. That's part of it. But my challenge to you is to increase the scope of who it is that we're including in hospitality. Thanks, Melissa. Wasn't that good? We invite people in to leave space for God to join us. I've had such a wonderful time in this series. I hope you have as well. Don't forget to watch tonight or to log in at 5 p.m. Pacific time for our meet and greet with Melissa on Zoom. And you can get that link once again, either through our app or our church webpage. In the meantime, let us continue to draw closer to God, to one another, and to ourselves through God's amazing gift of food. May we truly taste grace each and every day of our lives. And all God people said, Amen.